Hello, and welcome to episode six of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest triumphs, intrigues, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh LaHaz, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. Joanna is away today. In today's episode, we're going to ask whether criminal charges for a mini convoy protest in Newfoundland are warranted. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, we're going to fill you in on some of the policy resolutions that the Conservatives debated at their convention in Quebec City last week. Christine, you were there. Tell us about how it all went down. Yeah, so this is not really a news headline. This is more a recounting of what my last week was like. Um, I... I wanted to talk about the convention that I just got back from. I attended the convention as accredited media. I received media accreditation because of my role as a host of Canadian Justice, which is my television program. So it was in Quebec City, super beautiful place. I stayed inside the walled city. It was really lovely to be there. If you've never been to Quebec, I really recommend checking it out. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of the time at the convention itself. So there were two major, let's call them streams at the convention. There was the public policy stream where voting delegates, members of the conservative party who were selected to be voting de delegates, they voted on various political issues that the base of the party is concerned with. And then there was this other stream about conservative internal constitutional issues. So those are policies about how the conservative party governs itself. And most of the media reporting that we have seen coming out of the convention is focused on the public policy resolutions. And I will get to what those were, but the resolutions on how the party governs its, itself is actually a lot more meaningful. Uh, the, the public policy resolutions are not binding. So the way Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, has described the pol public policy resolutions leading up to the convention is he says, you know, the party membership sets some broad parameters, but that ultimately as leader, he's the one that makes decisions. He's informed by those policies. He isn't bound by them. But that is not the case with the constitutional resolutions. Those, those resolutions are changes to the governance of the party itself. And the party is bound by them. And there were a few proposed amendments that were really important for how the party governs itself. First, there was this resolution that said, the leader and caucus must promote and implement the policy declaration and not deviate substantially from the policy de de declaration when developing an election platform and legislation. So that means basically that the party may not substantially depart from the policy resolutions, the public policy resolutions uh, that are adopted by the membership. So all that stuff I just said about how the leader is not bound by the public policy resolutions. Well, if this constitutional amendment had passed, they would have been bound by it. They would have been required to actually put that into their platform. I mean, there is some wiggle room. I mean, what does substantially depart actually mean? But all those resolutions that I'm going to talk about, um, the public policy ones about um, sex changes for children, about the Canadian healthcare system, about medical assistance in dying, 
all of those would have become mandatory part of the conservative policy during an election. So that would have had a really big impact. Uh, that change to the to the constitution was was voted down. Uh, and there were some resolutions uh, about the, the constitutional resolutions about grassroots politics and conflicts between the National Council, which is that governing body, and riding associations. So there was a resolution about amending the process for National Council disqualifying candidates and creating an appeal process. And there was a resolution about nominations being required, even when there's a conservative incumbent. And that um, if more than 50% of all members in the riding association vote in favor of holding a nomination, even in a minority government, then a nomination will be held. So these are resolutions to change the internal functioning of the party that would have had such an impact on how the election played out. These resolutions failed, uh, but they were a lot more meaningful than the policy resolutions would have been. So briefly, let's talk about those policy resolutions that are no longer going to be, that it will not be mandatory, that are not going to be mandatory in, in the conservative election platform because that amendment failed. Um, but basically the way it works is different riding associations sponsor resolutions. And then at the convention itself, there are breakout sessions to debate the wording of those resolutions. There are about 60 of them. Media isn't allowed into those breakout sessions because they want to talk openly about the risks and benefits, I guess, of, of the changes to the wording. But only the top resolutions make it to the floor of the plenary session with all voting delegates and media is allowed in. So a lot of these resolutions dealt with some you know, political cultural issues and there were also some economic issues. All of the resolutions passed the floor of the plenary except for one resolution, which was about groundwater reserves. I don't really know why that one failed. There was a, a cattle rancher who spoke about that resolution on the floor opposing it, uh, saying it would hurt cattle ranchers. So I guess that's why that's why it failed. But everything else passed. And there were a number of cultural resolutions. Uh, there was a resolution on affirmative action and the need for merit-based hiring. There was a resolution uh, in uh, affirming the right to freedom of expression. There was a resolution saying Canada needs to develop domestic vaccine production capacity while at the same time affirming the right to decline vaccination. The wording of that was affirm Canadians have the freedom uh, and right to refuse vaccines for moral, religious, medical, or other reasons. There was a policy on the government funding palliative care and that the government should allow for flexibility in permitting provinces to offer public and private options in healthcare. That one passed. Of course, I support the notion that there should be flexibility in permitting provinces to offer private options and, and making changes to the Canada Health Act and how that's enforced. I think that that falls within federal jurisdiction. And of course, I like the sound of funding palliative care. It sounds important. But to me, I'm, I mean, putting this in a federal election platform might be a bit of a problem since healthcare is a, a provincial issue. Um, there was also a policy opposing the expansion of medical assistance in dying for mental illness and for economic reasons. And 
it actually, this resolution led with a statement saying that the party opposes all medical assistance in dying, which I don't know how reasonably they can implement a policy like that, given that the Supreme Court has upheld that there is a right to medical assistance in dying when you have a, uh, briefly, if you have a terminal terminal illness, you, you can get medical assistance in dying, and that's been affirmed in, by the Supreme Court. Um, the expansion to to economic and mental health measures came from a Quebec Court of Appeal decision that was never um, appealed to the Supreme Court. But I think that that one is, is legally questionable and certainly the government's put the brakes on that. But the two most contentious policy resolutions related to gender ideology, one was a resolution saying there's a need to preserve women-only spaces like women's change rooms, sports teams, awards and scholarships. Uh, and then the other was a resolution opposing sex changes for children. And it said that the party supports a ban on life altering and irreversible gender transitions for children and teenagers while encouraging positive mental and physical health support for all Canadians suffering from gender dysphoria and related mental health challenges. Uh, and the rationale for that resolution said that children cannot understand or consent to transitioning. And all of those resolutions passed. What's interesting to me is that I, I actually think that ensuring that children have, you know, mental health care, which is a, a type of health care, is should not be contentious. But the way that this was portrayed in media was that the resolution is about denying health care for gender dysphoric kids, when really it's about affirming mental health support for gender dysphoric kids and pro promoting that ahead of life-altering surgery and medical transitions. So, I mean, it's complete, the media has completely ignored that this is a, a mental health, a, a health resolution uh, and instead called it an anti-healthcare resolution. But uh, I think my perspective on this particular resolution is clear. The, the thing that is interesting about that resolution, though, to me, is I don't actually know how the federal, a federal government might implement this in practice. Like, are they proposing adding criminal code prohibitions to medical and surgical uh, sex changes for, for children? Is I, I don't think that's what's being proposed. But the issue about what the standard of care for gender dysphoric children is seems to lie more with the standards of care set out by health professionals in as a regulated profession. So it sort of shows the importance of the first policy resolutions that say the uh, the constitutional amendments that say this this does not have to automatically become a part of the conservative election platform. If that had passed, imagine all of these resolutions that are perhaps even outside the scope of the power of the federal government. Imagine those being required to be part of the election platform. Um, Josh, any any reaction to any of these resolutions? Any thought on this? I think there are a lot of, you know, pretty serious proposals here that do protect constitutional rights. And so I was happy to see a lot of these, you know, for example, um, the vaccine choice um, resolution I thought was quite reasonable. And I was really happy to see the, the merit-based hiring resolution. Um, I don't think you read this one, but it basically says that the goal would be to, quote, restore merit in Canada's innovation by directing hiring practices associated with the federal research funding 
away from ideology and instead emphasizing first and foremost, supporting and retaining Canada's top research talent, irrespective of their personal immutable characteristics. And that to me is like really encouraging because I think the federal funding, uh, research funding policy is is outrageous. You know, basically half of all professor jobs are now reserved for people from certain groups. And basically that just means anyone who's not, you know, white or male. And that's a problem because if you do a PhD and you do a lot of research and you you spend, you know, a decade researching some very specific topic, you might be the only person doing that in the entire country. But if you happen to be, you know, white or male, you're never going to get a job doing that research, you know, you could be Albert Einstein and you would not be able to get hired at a lot of our universities due to these affirmative action policies from the federal government. Um, and, you know, we talked about this on the podcast before, like our, our charter does um, allow for some level of affirmative action, but yeah, section 15 too. Yeah. But I mean, but we always forget about section 15 one, which is that we're not <laughs> supposed to discriminate. And so what's happening here is you have cases where there's like no evidence of any actual arbitrary treatment. There's no evidence that, you know, women or racial minorities are being excluded. A lot of these, um, a lot of these jobs, for example, you know, you'll find 80% of the people in them are from, for example, like an Asian or South Asian background, but they can qualify and, you know, white guys can't because uh, that's how the policy has been set up. So I think it's good to see that because these things have gone too far but i'm a lot less enthusiastic as a civil libertarian about this this medical gender transition policy because you know on the one hand i do think a lot of people have really legitimate concerns about um things like puberty blocking drugs you know the media portrays them as just buying time or this sort of benign thing where kids with gender dysphoria can figure out whether they want to you know, live as one gender permanently or not, but these drugs are not benign. And a lot of European countries are recognizing now that um, these drugs have, you know, really serious potential medical consequences as, as in some cases, gender dysphoria does. So I don't want to discount that. And we're also seeing that, you know, it's sort of undeniable now that, well, some people who transition are happy long-term and it's the right choice for them. A lot of people detransition or at least some small minority detransition. And, you know, if, if kids go through some surgery at age 16 and regret it at, at age 20, that's just, um, that's one of the worst things I can imagine happening. So, you know, where I get concerned though, is this sort of like blanket ban on anyone under 18 accessing medical care as I understand it, um, because I think those decisions are best left with, you know, parents and kids and the doctors all sort of in consultation with each other. Um, and also, you know, I think that if you look at the Constitution, we do have medical choice. And there are cases where, you know, kids are mature enough at 16, 17 to, to make medical decisions. So, I think some version of of this can make sense, but like the way that it's written, I'm kind of glad that they won't have to go through with this exact policy because I don't think they've got it got it quite right. You sound uh, a lot like there was someone who spoke on the floor about this and pointed. They said it was hypocritical to affirm the right to make medical choices about vaccination, but 
um, not about uh, gender surgeries or sex surgeries. Uh, and and they they pointed that they thought that this was hypocritical. Uh, I, I do think that there is a lack of guardrails of, around which kids are eligible for this surgery. And it, it feels like a bit of a um, conveyor belt based on some of the things that I have read about it. But I am I am open minded about, you know, there might be cases where where it is uh, appropriate to have some type of medical intervention for a highly distressed gender dysphoric kid. I just I think we need some some better guardrails. So I agree with you. I think that this resolution, perhaps the language of it might be over overly broad. But the bigger problem to me is I just am not sure how the federal government would go about implementing this, what it would look like. And I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable with the idea of using the criminal law to address it. I don't I don't know that that is what is being suggested by the policy, but I'm trying to think of what tools are in the federal government's toolbox. And I, I just am not sure how it could be addressed. Anyway, Josh, why don't we why don't we hear about your news headline for the for the week? So my news headline is about these criminal charges that have been laid in connection with a mini convoy protest in St. John's, Newfoundland. So the two people have been charged with criminal harassment and with causing a disturbance. I haven't seen the court documents, so I don't know all the details, but CBC News reports that these charges stem from an incident back in July that happened outside of the premier's home. So this is uh Newfoundland Premier Andrew Fury. And according to CBC, this mini convoy protest was was disruptive because it had, you know, flares and they used megaphones. But uh, we really don't know what makes this into criminal harassment. What we do know is, you know, the Premier said when people step up to serve, they don't step up to have protests at their home, to have their children frightened or to have their family frightened. So he's alleging you know, that his kids were scared by this protest. But again, I don't know how that makes it criminal. And so I was trying to figure out what happened. I went online and I found a YouTube video from one of the two people charged who goes by the name Raven online. And in this video, Raven explains that, you know, there was this protest out the, outside the premier's house, but these flares were just like the pink and blue flares that they sell for gender reveal parties. And this is because the protest was apparently related to gender ideology in schools. And Raven is very concerned about some of the things they're teaching in, in sex ed. And, you know, she, she says she's shocked that she was charged. And like I said, I don't have the crown side of this, so I don't know for sure what they're, what they're thinking, but she seems to suggest this really was a pretty peaceful protest, you know, it was in the afternoon. It was on public property. They didn't go onto the premier's lawn, according to her, and that this was just a you know six or seven minute protest. And it's actually kind of hard to figure out what they were protesting. Um, Raven says that it all started when uh, there was a kid in her her son's class named Lucifer, and her kid didn't want to be forced to call the kid Lucifer. And you know, like That's I said, a terrible name for a child. <laughs> Yeah, and I also don't know how this uh, has to do with um, with gender stuff, but uh, that's but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just that they're they're a Christian family, and and that was concerning to them. I don't know, but um, yeah, like I said, it has something to do with gender ideology. But regardless of what the content is, um, the question is whether 
criminal charges were warranted for what appears to be a peaceful protest. You know, I was thinking about this. It's it's not as though there's any evidence out there, at least in the, the in what I've read and what I've seen, that this woman was harassing the premier. You know, she says she's never even emailed him before on this issue. So I don't know if there's like a pattern of harassment that could lead to such a serious charge. And also, I just want to note in Ontario, the premiers here, um, you know, both the current premier Doug Ford and the previous premier Kathleen Wynne have faced these kinds of protests outside their homes. And it's really obnoxious. Like, I don't think people, I, I don't know, I personally think it's an, an, an annoying tactic that's kind of beyond the pale to show up at someone's house. But um, the question, again, is whether it's it's criminal to do that and whether you have a right to do that um, on public property outside someone's house. And here in Ontario, it's notable, you know, Kathleen Wynne, the Liberal Premier, she was protested by Black Lives Matter, and they actually camped out in front of her yard or in her yard overnight. So they were actually trespassing. And I don't Doug think Ford were... was protested as well at his home. And right. public, public health officers were protested in Toronto as well at their homes. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's just an obnoxious thing. Like Ford here too. Like, like you say, I think it was anti-vax mandate protests. I, I think I, so. Yeah, it's something to do with the with COVID. And like he couldn't he couldn't leave his house for a time, and yet there were no charges related to that. So, so I'm a bit concerned about this. These Newfoundland charges, like criminal harassment, is is serious. It leads to jail time a lot of the time. It leads to you know, if you if you if you take a, a plea deal so that you don't go to jail, you still end up with a firearms ban that makes it hard to get a job in the future because firearms ban shows up every time someone does a background check. And um, I think we need to, like, be really careful before we start laying criminal charges for for protests. And it reminded me of this case, Bracken and Fort Erie, that it's one of my favorite cases. So I'll talk about it really quickly here. So Bracken was a guy in Ontario who was opposed to a bylaw that would have allowed a medical marijuana facility to be built across from his home. And so he kept going to City Hall and he brought a microphone and he was you know, yelling into the microphone about how he opposed this medical marijuana facility bylaw. And he was really annoying to the town councillors and to the staff. And so at one point, they the staff claimed that they were scared of him and so they issued a trespass notice and then when he came back to protest again the police arrested him and this went all the way to the court of appeal and the court of appeal said look you you can't you know arrest a guy for trespass just because he's using a microphone and yelling that he opposes a bylaw like this is the exact type of thing that freedom of expression protects and they went through the freedom of expression test um the Ontario Court of Appeal, and they said, you know, the first step is if somebody is trying to convey meaning, which obviously they are when they're protesting a bylaw. The second step is whether method or location removes the protection of free speech. You know, if there's physical violence, if, if the expression is literal physical violence, that's not protected. In some cases, certain locations like, you know, inside the prime minister's office is not going to be protected because that's incompatible with with free speech. And then the third step is just whether the government has, you know, infringed the right. And the court clarified in Bracken that, you know, violence is not the mere absence of civility. 
just because uh, a, a subject feels disquieted, unease, or even fear, that doesn't mean that counts as violence that takes away the free speech protection. So then the only question left is whether this location, you know, outside the premier's home is somehow not protected from free speech. And I think if they're, you know, on his lawn or trying to go in his house, maybe that would be not protected. But I find it hard to believe that, you know, just because it's close to his house that suddenly people are not allowed to, you know, express their, their, express themselves in uh, protest outside of the premier's home. So I hope to follow this a little bit more and see what happens. Um, Christine, I know you just you just heard about this story today, but do you have any reaction? Do you think this protest went too far or do you think the charges are potentially unwarranted? The only thing I can think is there there has to be something more threatening involved than just standing outside of his home. And if there is like, obviously, you can't threaten, threaten physical violence of that. But but you seem to be suggesting that that didn't happen. I mean, I, I think back to when um, Rob Ford, the premier's brother, when he was mayor, when he had all those those problems, and, uh, he had a lot, but there was this period where he couldn't leave his house either. It wasn't protest, but it was the media, right? And there's there's media rights as well to stake out locations, to conduct interviews. But I, I mean, that was highly disruptive to, to that entire neighborhood, which isn't too far from where I live, actually. And there were people in, in the bushes. He, his house was along a public park. And so you could see to into his yard from, from the park behind his house. And I mean, that, there's not even a whiff that there was a criminal thing happening there. Um, despite some suggestions by the by the, the mayor at the time that there, there were, there was nothing improper about staking out his house. So unless there's something more going on here that I don't know about, I think absolutely you have a right to to protest subject to, of course, noise ordinances and things like that. Uh, but but yeah, I, I don't I don't like the notion of criminalizing any type of protest. Well, that's all I have to say about about that. Anyway, let's let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I can give you my freedom update, which is short this week, but really exciting. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. So this week's Freedom Update is a short one, but it is short and sweet. It's really exciting. Joanna Barron and I, Joanna's not here this week, but we have written our very first book together. And it's called Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. So the book presents a critical and comprehensive assessment of the impact of the pandemic on civil liberties. And it's available now on Amazon for pre-order. We are thrilled that on Amazon in three categories, it's already rated as a number one bestseller in the categories of government and politics, healthcare, current events and civil rights. So it's already number one. You can help keep us at number one by purchasing a copy on pre-order. Check it out. It's called Pandemic Panic. 
And basically it is a record of what happened to our rights during the pandemic from a perspective that civil liberties actually matter. This is something that seemed to have been forgotten by a lot of our political leaders during the pandemic because the response of our leaders and a lot of people, just regular citizens, the response of many people has been to sort of just forget everything that happened. A lot of these strange irrational and oppressive things that the government did, we've kind of shoved into this memory hole and not even realized that it could happen again. You know, a pandemic in our lifetime is not that uh, that unreasonable a thing to expect could happen again. So it has a foreword in it by Preston Manning. And we have some suggestions at the end of the book on things that we can do to better guard our civil liberties. Because if we forget what happened, if we forget history, it will repeat itself and the government will violate our rights again. Reading this book will help ensure that these violations don't happen again. Or if the government tries them, we will have an informed citizenry to push back. We're going to talk about all of our different constitutional rights from freedom of expression to freedom of religion, assembly. We talk about democracy and the rule of law. There's a whole chapter on the Freedom Convoy and on the Public Order Emergency Commission, the use of the Emergencies Act, and there's a whole chapter on vaccine mandates. So I loved writing this book. It has been a long process, but I'm thrilled that it is finally here. So please check it out on Amazon, Pandemic Panic. Josh, let's turn to you now for our bad legal takes of the week. My bad legal take this week goes to Mary Simon, the governor general or head of state who does not seem to have even a basic grasp of her constitutional duties. Christine, <laughs> um, I had this babysitter when I was a kid. Her name was Margie. She was British and she used to tell us at dinner time that children were to be seen but not heard which is, you know, one of those weird things that British people say to their children. And my parents, so would, British. my parents would just be like, you know, just ignore her, whatever. Um, but I think that, well, you know, I've never heeded that lesson. I think Mary Simon, whose entire job as head of state is to be seen, but to be heard as little as possible, might want to consider that lesson. You know, Simon's job is to represent the king in Canada and that the whole monarchy the, the purpose of the monarchy and our constitutional structure is to be a neutral and nonpartisan embodiment of, of the nation. It represents this idea of continuity and that the state is above partisan politics and that the state, you know, continues even after the government falls or the government changes. And, you know, granted, not a lot of people understand this about our constitution, but if you Google what the governor general's job is, it literally takes you to her own website where the first paragraph says, her job is to be, quote, nonpartisan and nonpolitical. And, you know, we pay her an exorbitant amount of money to to be seen and not heard. Her salary was three hundred and forty two thousand one hundred dollars in 2022, which was a which was a 13 percent raise from 2019 because, you know, inflation. Right. And, you know, this is why we let her jet around the world, spending spending all of our taxpayer dollars like when she spent hundred thousand dollars recently on meals for in-flight catering for a single week for her and her staff something that she got a teddy waste award from taxpayer.com for her her beef wellington <laughs> well you know she she apparently apparently they uh she says these are just like regular 
airplane meals, but I think she means oh, yeah, re regular sure. airplane meals in first class, I think is, is what she means. And, you know, I don't even really care that much about how much she spends because it's a really important job. But I care. Her, and I, I know don't think do. it's important. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's an important job, though. You are like at, you're the apex of the state and you're there to sort of, you know, prevent the state from just being from having, you know, Justin Trudeau as our head of state, that there's something above the partisan politicians that I think is sort of meaningful in our constitution. But anyway, she she doesn't seem to understand that her job is to not be political. And the latest example of this is where she gave a speech last week where she endorsed the concept of denialism, something that we've talked about before on this podcast. And whether you believe that uh, denialism is going on or not, this is like one of the most contentious political issues in Canada right now, you know, Absolutely. whether whether you should be allowed to to question um, unmarked graves at residential schools. And, you know, to be clear, I believe there are a lot of unmarked graves at residential schools and that a lot of residential school children were neglected and abused and that the whole chapter in Canadian history is a travesty. But the Liberals are proposing jail time for this, for just, you know, talking about this issue or questioning um what really went on and and that too, or how you know, many how many bodies there are it's what you can't question right right and so this is a really scary thing from a free expression point of view and it's it's a it's that the point is it's a political conversation you know the ndp has endorsed this and the liberals have said they're open to it um so basically by by endorsing this idea mary simon is taking sides and not only did she endorse the denialism idea but she also said, quote, denialism takes the form of attacks online and through the media. And, you know, which media is she talking about? Is she talking about Terry Glavin, who did a big report pointing out that, you know, no mass graves had actually been un un uncovered? Uh, is she talking about Barry Weiss, who, who published on this in her or who did a podcast on this speaking to Glavin? And not only is not only is this a really bad example of weighing in, to politics, but she's done it before, you know, back in March, when there was a big conversation about what to do about journalists and uh, former journalists like, you know, Rachel Gilmore from Global News at the time, what to do about abuse they face online. She weighed in to that conversation too. And, you know, her job is to just stay out of it and to be above politics. So I think this is a real problem. I think my bad legal take is basically um, her view on her own job because she doesn't seem to understand that she needs to stay neutral and nonpartisan. And where this becomes an issue is if, you know, the conservatives and the liberal NDP coalition end up basically tied in the next election and she has to decide who gets to try and form government first, that has massive consequences. And now if she, you know, for example, if she gives the liberals and the NDP the first crack at forming government, we're all going to just assume that that's because she's biased towards the, the liberals and the NDP. So anyway, my rant is over. That's my bad legal take. Let's let's hear yours, Christine. So my bad legal take this week, actually, I'm going to have two. One is short, very short. They're both from the Conservative Party convention. Peter McKay spoke at the Conservative convention. He was introduced you know, all of his amazing credentials were touted. And the person who introduced him said, not only was he attorney general, but at the very same time, he was also the justice minister. 
It's like, yes, those are the same title. You have both. Uh, you know, he was also a member of parliament at the same time. Wow. The uh, Can he, is there nothing he can't do? Okay. So my other bad legal take also comes from the convention. And, you know, sometimes at the convention, there will be, you know, party crashers. And there were a few party crashers at the conservative convention in Quebec last week. People who came with their own agenda to attract media. And two of them were senior liberal cabinet ministers, Pablo Rodriguez and Stephen Guibault. And the bad legal take comes from Rodriguez. He scrummed outside the convention because it's all about him, of course. And he was asked by independent journalist Andrew Lawton about Bill C-11 and how it was impacting small news outlets uh, many of these small out news outlets depend on social media platforms to share their content. And obviously, now after Bill C-18, they cannot share that content and it is hurting them. So Lawton said that CBC will be getting the lion's share of any of the money that is negotiated from the platforms uh, that they're required to pay under the Online News Act. Why don't I just play the clip? The, the former yeah, vice chair it. of the CRTC said that it's the CBC that's going to get the lion's share of any money given under the Online News Act. So how is that supporting independent media creators in Canada when it's just increasing an already very generous uh, subsidy that the CBC gets from the government? Well, we based our bill on what we saw in Australia, and we did tweak it, and I think we made it better. Uh, but if you look at Australia, proportionally, it's all the, the small media that got more than the rest. But that's not what experts are saying in Canada will happen. They're saying CBC will get even more money of that. Those are against the bill. But when you speak to the people in Australia and we brought some of the experts. <laughs> but these are Canadian and, experts. And they went to the committees. It's the same structure. And they went to the committees and they said proportionally all the small media got more. So, I, I mean, he he's talking about how in Australia the small media got money. But Lawton's like, you know, that's not what's happening in Canada, though. It's gonna. It's hurting small creators. He's like, well, that's not what happened in Australia. It's like, yeah, no shit. Australia is a different country, and this is just such a stupid take. The law is different, but the market is also different. You, Canada has 15 million more people. Our news market is actually considered smaller, though. Even though our population is bigger, our news market is considerably smaller than Australia's. And the other thing is that the approach Canada took is totally different from the approach Australia took. When Facebook decided to block Australian news from its platform, the government immediately entered negotiations that ended with the Australian government loosening many of the arbitration rules that they'd originally sought. So Australia allowed tech companies to negotiate with the news outlets outside of that framework of the legislation and the legislation itself had never even put, been put into use. But in our case, the Trudeau government has much more stringent rules for arbitration, which would be run through the CRTC. And basically, Australian leaders succeeded because they understood their own position at the bargaining table. They understood their market. And the the Trudeau government is taking the exact opposite position, but pointing to Australia, a completely different market that took a totally different approach and saying, well, the Australian experts say this, this and this. So this take by Rodriguez and, and also Rodriguez's take is the, the Canadian experts who are saying that this is bad are saying it's bad because they don't like the bill. It's like maybe they don't like the bill because it is bad. So 
that's that's it. That's those are my two two bad legal takes. One is a little more serious than the other. Uh, Josh, anything to to add if, before you close us out? No, nothing to add. As usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And just remember that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded entirely by your donations, so please click that donate button on the website if you can. If you have ideas for the show, you can write me, Josh DeHaas, at jdehaas at theccf.ca. Joanna Barron at jbarron at theccf.ca or Christine at cvangine at theccf.ca. Thanks for listening.